The Art of Poetry, Part Two, by Quintus Horatius Flaccus, translated by Mason and Watt, read for LibriVox.org by Lini. Either the story is enacted upon the stage, or actions are reported. What enters by the ear stirs the feelings less deeply than that which is submitted to the faithful witness of the eyes, where the spectator is his own messenger. Nonetheless, we will not bring upon the stage what should be done within, and we will hide much from view, that in due course it may be told by the eloquence of an eye-witness. Let not Medea butcher her children before the world, or impious Atreus openly cook human flesh, or Procne turn into a bird, or Cadmus into a snake. Whatever of this kind you show me, unconvinced I hate. The play which hopes to be called for and once more brought to view upon the stage must not fall short of the fifth act, nor reach beyond it. Let no god intervene, unless there be a knot fit for a god to untie, and let no fourth character labor to speak. The chorus should take a share in the action, in a male part, and should sing no interludes between the acts that do not further the plot and fit it closely. It should support and give friendly counsel to the good, control the passionate, and love those who fear to sin. Let it praise the banquet of a frugal table, healthful justice, the laws, and peace with open gates. Let it keep secrets, and pray and implore the gods that fortune may return to the unhappy, and forsake the proud. Once the flute, not as now, bound with copper and challenging the trumpet, but low-voiced and of simple form and small opening, served to breathe harmony and support the choric song, and with its note to fill the theatre, as yet not too crowded. Thither assembled a people that could well be numbered, for it was small, and it was sparing, pure, and modest. But when that people began by conquest to extend its territory, with its widening wall to embrace cities, when, without rebuke on a holiday, men comforted their souls by drinking by daylight, rhythm and harmony gained a greater freedom too. For, untaught and making holiday, what should they know of taste, countrymen and citizens mingled together, high and low? So it came that the flute-player added motion and wantonness to his former art, and trailed his robe as he roamed the stage. So, too, the sterner lyre gained notes, and headlong eloquence produced unwanted speech, and its utterances, wise to discern what was expedient and guess the future, differed not from those of oracular Delphi. The man who in tragic song contended for the poor prize of a he-goat soon, too, brought naked satires on the stage, and roughly tried his hand at jest, leaving dignity unharmed. For, by the vices and pleasing novelty, he had to hold the spectator, who had performed his sacrifice, and drunk, and was unbound by law. But while you strive to win approval for your laughters and witty satires, and mingle mirth and earnest, Still, it will not do that any god or any hero whom you call in, one who was but now seen in royal purple and gold, should, in his homely speech, adopt the tone of uncouth taverns, or, while he strives to shun the ground, strain cloud-high after windy language. Tragedy, that scorns to chatter frivolous lines, like a matron who is bidden to dance upon a holiday, will be modest, and mingle but little with wanton satires. It will not be mine, Pesos, when I write satire plays, 
to cling to plain names and common words alone, nor will I strive to be so far removed from the tone of tragedy that it will make no matter whether it be Davis who speaks in bold Pythias, enriched by the talent of which is swindled Simon, or Silenus, the guardian and servant of the god, his nursling. I will strive after language composed of well-known words, such that any one might hope for himself to attain, and should sweat much and toil in vain when he attempted it. Such is the power of order and context, so great the dignity that can be added to common words. If I were judge, the fawns that are summoned from the forest should have a care that they never, as though born in the alleys and almost denizens of the forum, trifled in too dainty verse, or shouted obscene and scurrilous words. For those who possess a horse, a father, and a competence take offence, nor even if the buyer of roast peas and nuts is inclined to approve, do they receive it favourably or crown the author. A long syllable added to a short is called an iambus, a rapid foot, and from its swiftness it bade the name trimeters attached itself to iambic lines, although the line had six beats, and from the first foot to the last was still the same. Not so long since, that it might strike the ear with something more of slowness and weight, being of a kindly and patient nature, it welcomed the steady spondeus into its ancestral realm, but still it would not yield to them as equals the second or the fourth foot. The iambus appears but rarely in the much-praised trimeters of Asius, and Aeneas's verses, launched with mighty weight upon the theatre, labor under the degrading charge of too rapid and careless work, or of an ignorance of art. Tis not every critic that can detect bad metre in verse, and an undeserved license has been granted to Roman poets. But for that, am I to break bounds and write loosely? Or shall I, thinking that all will see my faults, be on the safe side, and keep within the limits wherein I may hope for pardon? If I do so, I have escaped blame, but not earned praise. But do you, night and day, turn the leaves of your Greek models? You say your grandfathers praised the meter and the wit of Plautus. Their admiration of both was too forbearing, not to say foolish, if only you and I can distinguish a provincial joke from true wit, and can by the fingers and the ear detect the proper rhythm. Thespis is said to have discovered the form of tragic poetry, till then unknown, and to have carried in wagons his place for men to sing and act, their faces smeared with wine-leaves. Next, Aeschylus, inventor of the mask and stately robe, built up the stage with narrow planks, and taught his actors to speak loud and stalk upon their buskin. After them came the old comedy, and won high praise, but freedom turned to license and to violence that needed to be checked by law. The law was passed, and, its right to injury gone, the chorus grew silent to its own disgrace. Our poets have left not untried, nor did they earn their smallest praise, when such as wrote tragedies and comedies in Roman dress dared to leave the footmarks of the Greeks, and tell of native life. And Lachium had been no less famous for her literature than for her courage and illustrious arms, had not the labor of the file and expenditure of time been distasteful to all these poets. But do you, offspring of Pompilius, condemn any poem that many a day and many an erasure has not pruned and chastened ten times, till the pared nail detects no roughness. Because Democritus believes that genius is a better gift of fortune than humble art, 
and shuts out from Helicon such poets as are sane, no small number of them are not at the pains to cut their nails or beards, seek hidden spots, and shun the baths. For you may win the reward and title of a poet, if you never put into the hands of Licinus, the barber, the head that three Antiseras could not heal. Fool that I am, I purge myself of choler when spring comes on. Were it not so, no man had been a better poet, but no matter. Let me then serve as a whetstone, which, though it have no part or lot in cutting, can still make steel sharp. Though writing not myself, I will teach the function and duty of a writer, whence he gets his supplies, what feeds and shapes him, what he should do and what not, whither excellence and whither error leads. Of writing, the beginning and source is sound knowledge, and the subject the Socratic leaves will show you. That provided for, the words will readily follow. He who has learned what is owing to country and friends, with what love a parent, with what love a friend or brother, is to be loved, what is the duty of a senator, what of a judge, and what the part of a leader sent upon campaign, it is just he who knows how to bestow the fitting attributes on every character. I would bid my learned imitator look to the model given by life and manners, and thence draw living utterances. Often a play with striking general truths and characters well drawn, though it possess no beauty and be without weighty or artistic language, pleases the audience and holds them better than verses which lack subject or than melodious trifles. To the Greeks the muse gave genius and rounded utterance, for they cared for naught but glory. The youth of Rome learned by long reckonings to divide the ace into a hundred parts. Answer, Albinus's son, take away one twelfth from five twelfths, and what is over? You might have answered by now. A third. Well done, you will be able to keep your property. Add a twelfth, and what's the answer? A half. When this rust and care for money has once infected the mind, do we hope that poems can be written which are worthy to be smeared with setter oil or capped in polished cypress? Poets seek either to profit or to delight, or to say what shall be pleasing and at the same time helpful in our lives. Whatever counsel you give, be short, that what is quickly said the mind may quickly catch and learn and retain faithfully. No mere verbiage will stay in the burdened memory. That which is devised for entertainment's sake must be as near as may be to the truth. The story must not demand that whatever it likes be believed, or bring forth a live child from the maw of gorged Lamia. The centuries of seniors will cast aside poems that serve no useful end. The rumness will haughtily pass by those that are severe. But every vote is carried by the man who mingles pleasure and profit by delighting the reader, and teaching too. This is the book that will make money for the saucier, this the book that will cross the sea and make its author known, winning for him long life. But there are faults we could wish to pardon, for the string gives not ever the note that hand and thought require, but often when the player asks for a low note, answers with a high, nor always will the bow strike all that it threatens. But where much in a poem is bright, I am not one to take offence at the few spots which want of care scattered on the work, or human frailty overlooked. Where then lies the point? As a copyist, if he still makes the same mistake though warned, is not excused, as a harpist who always goes wrong on the same string becomes a laughing-stock, 
so with me a writer who is often out becomes like querless at home if once or twice he reaches excellence i wonder with a smile yet i am angry too when noble homer nods but in so long a work it was but right that slumber should steal upon him as in painting so in poetry one work will take your fancy if you stand close to it another if you stand far off this loves dimness and that would be seen in the light and does not shrink from the critic's keen judgment this pleased us only once that seen ten times over will please o oh, elder of the youths although by a father's voice you are molded to wisdom and have judgment of your own take to yourself the saying and remember that in certain things that which is middling and will pass is rightly tolerated a middling attorney or barrister is far below the excellence of eloquent messala and does not know as much as allos caselius and yet he is esteemed but that poets should be middling is tolerated neither by men nor by gods nor by shop windows as at a pleasant banquet discordant music or thick ointment or poppy seed with sardinian honey is an offence because the dinner could have dispensed with them so poetry that was born and devised to please if it fall but little short of the best comes near the worst he who cannot play lets alone the weapons of the training ground and unskilled to use the ball or the disc or the hoop keeps quiet lest the encircling crowd raise a laugh and he have naught to say yet the man who knows nothing of verses still dares to write them why not he is freeborn and a gentleman nay he is rated as owning a knight's property and has every virtue but you will never do or say aught against minerva's wish such is your judgment such your purpose still if you ever write a work let it come before the critical ear of Mycius, before your father's and mine. Let it be kept back nine years, the parchment laid aside. Unpublished works can be destroyed. The word once uttered can never be recalled. Woodland men were turned from slaughter and from savage food by holy Orpheus, the prophet of heaven, and therefore he is said to have charmed tigers and raging lions. Tis said, too, that Amphion, the founder of the Theban city, moved rocks by the sound of his flute, and by his sweet appeal led them whither he would. Herein once was wisdom, to distinguish what was the states and what the citizens, what sacred and what profane, to check promiscuous intercourse and give right to husbands, to found cities and inscribe laws upon wood. Thus reverence and fame were the reward of heavenly seers and song. After their days, Homer won fame, and Tertius, by his verse, whetted heroic souls for martial wars. Oracles were given in song, and the way of life made plain. Men strove by Pyrian music to win the favor of kings, and found out festivals to be the end of long labors, lest you feel shame for the muse skilled in the lyre, and Apollo the god of song. It has been asked if a noble poem is made by nature or art. For my part, I cannot see what profit there is in study without a rich vein of genius, or in genius untrained. So much does the one require the other's aid, and so friendly is their conspiracy. He who would fain reach the hoped-for goal has done and suffered much in boyhood, has sweated and felt cold, has kept himself from love and wine. The flute-player who plays at the Pythian games has first learned his art and dreaded a master. Today it is enough to say, I compose marvellous poems, devil take the hindmost, 
For me, it is a shame if I am left behind, and if I admit that I know frankly nothing of what I never learned. Like an auctioneer who gathers a crowd to buy his goods, a poet who is rich in lands and rich in money put out at interest, bids flatterers come for gain. Moreover, if he is one who knows well how to set on a dainty meal, and can go bail for the poor man who has no credit, and rescue one who is entangled in the fatal meshes of litigation, I shall be surprised if, fortunate as he is, he can distinguish a liar from a true friend. If you have made a present, or wish to make one to any man, do not, when he is in the fullness of his joy, bring him to hear the verses you have made, for he will cry, Beautiful! Good! Right! He will grow pale at some, nay more, he will let fall the dew from sympathetic eyes, he will dance and beat the ground with his foot. As hired mourners at a funeral do, and say almost more than those who grieve from their hearts, the flatterer is more moved than a sincere admirer. Kings, tis said, are wont to ply with many cups, and rack with wine, the man whose worthiness to be a friend they labor to test. If you build poems, you will never be deceived by the spirit that lurks in the fox. If you ever read a poem to Quintilius, he would say, I would have you mend this and this. If you asserted you could do no better, and had tried twice or three times in vain, he would bid you destroy the ill-turned lines, or send them back to the anvil. If you chose rather to defend than to change a fault, not another word, nor further useless pains would he bestow to save you from becoming the lover of yourself and your own works alone and without a rival. A man who is sincere and wise will condemn wrecked lines and blame harsh, and with a cross stroke of his pen will set a black mark against such as are inartistic, pretentious ornament. He will cut out, and will force obscure verses to give light, convict a double meaning, and note what must be changed. He will be an Aristarchus, and will not say, Why should I quarrel with a friend about trifles? These trifles lead to grave ills, when once a writer has been fooled and treated insincerely. Wise men fear to touch a frenzied poet, and shun him as they do a man afflicted by the pest of scurvy or the royal disease, by frantic delusion or Diana's wrath, while boys tease him and rashly follow him. Should such a one, while belching forth verses head in air and strain about, fall, like a bird-catcher intent on blackbirds, into a well or pit, he might shout aloud, Help, fellow citizens! But there would be none who cared to pull him out. If any cared to bring him aid and let down a rope, how do you know, I should say, whether he did not throw himself down here on purpose and does not want to be saved? And I shall tell of the death of the Sicilian poet. In his desire to be thought an immortal god, Empedocles, in cold blood, leapt into burning Etna. Let poets have the right and be allowed to perish. To save a man against his will is the same as to kill him. Tis not the first time he has done this, and if he is dragged back, he will not now become a sane man and put aside his desire for a distinguished death. Nor is there reason apparent why he keeps making verses, whether he defiled his father's ashes, or godlessly touched an ill-owned spot blasted by lightning, tis certain he is infuriated, and like a bear that has managed to burst the confining bars of its cage, he scatters, learned and unlearned alike, with his insufferable recitations. The man he seizes, he holds and murders by his reading, a leech that will not let go the skin till he is full of blood. End of poem.
This recording is in the public domain.